It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. I am excited to be talking with my friend, Charlie Green, again. Been on the show once before. He's one of the co-authors of The Trust Advisor with David Mazel, author of Trust-Based Selling, the original Trust-Based Selling, and consultant to corporations about the subject of trust. So, Charlie, welcome back to Accelerate. Thank you, Andy. Pleasure to be here. Enjoyed it. Yeah, always a pleasure to have you on the show. So, maybe for people that didn't listen to the previous episode, uh, take a minute and introduce yourself. Okay. Like you said, Charlie Green. Uh, I'm an ex-consultant, uh, MBA, spent 20 years in consulting and found my way into writing, co-writing a book, as you said, The Trusted Advisor with David Maester and Rob Galford. Uh, that came out in 2001. It's about exactly what it sounds like. How do you become a trusted advisor to your clients? I stuck with it for the last 15 years, wrote a couple other books, Trust-Based Selling, The Trusted Advisor Field Book. Mm-hmm. I work mostly with large, complicated, intangible services, businesses like Accenture, Deloitte, uh, also B2B sales like uh, Intel, Google, uh, things of that ilk. All right. So, so here's a question for you. And, and you know, we say buyers have to know or have to know, like, and trust someone in order to buy from them. But as a seller, we don't really get to know the prospect or they don't really get to know us, at least not in a personal sense. And or similarly with the like, you know, it's, it's sort of a, I say sort of a superficial like, uh, maybe more about being non-objectionable. So if that's the case about no like and trust is, is or no, no and like, you're the expert in trust. How do we, is the same true about trust? Is it a superficial trust or is it actual trust? Well, I think... Uh, um, I think that in in, B2, in complex B two B selling, let's put it that way, mm-hmm. as opposed to at the opposite end is low price transactional. Doesn't matter much; sure. it's easy to understand. Buying a couple low of risk, bucks, low risk, all that stuff. I don't need to have a personal trust relationship with my barista. You know, although sometimes that happens. <laughs> but you know, we're talking about the big stuff, and I do believe that um, uh, that it is more complicated and more interpersonal based and. Uh, I don't think you have to like people, but you do have to feel a personal connection. Uh, you don't have to agree with them. You don't have to like them, but you have to feel that they're paying attention to you genuinely mm-hmm. as a human being. Right. And you can, in fact, execute on that. In fact, that's the challenge. That's what I write about in trust-based selling quite a bit. How do you quickly and legitimately establish a personalized link, a connection to somebody uh, in, in, um, uh, you know, in a process that that's, uh, appears extremely impersonal? All the forces yeah. around us are making it increasingly impersonal. Right. Well, I think it's a great question. I think that is sort of the question because yeah. I mean, I, I agree with Bob Berg, you know, and he uses the term to know, like, and trust quite a bit. But yeah, but I, I think some people sort of see that and they think, well, it's more than it is in sort of in the know and like. But as you said, it's more about this personal connection. Yeah. Well, let's let's reverse engineer how it how it works. What I've come to to. Sure. to appreciate going through almost 20 years of focusing on this trust issue. Um, it, it, it is trust is at the heart of it. We come to sort of instinctively trust people. There's a few myths around it, like trust takes time. No, it doesn't actually. Most of the time, trust happens in little stutter steps, little instance uh, step functions of, oh my gosh, you know, that's cool. And, and you kind of move up a level. 
And it also happens. Um, well, and those those are what I call sort of perceptions, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I mean there's a whole issue of, of you know people talk about you know, precognitive processing and precognitive absolutely. Perceptions. This is all this is all a very non-cognitive. You know, the it's I forget whether it's type one or type two that uh, or, or you know that, that, that Kahneman talks about. It's the, yeah, it's system one, right? But it's happening without you really even knowing about it. Absolutely, subconscious and all that stuff, but it's very very real. Uh, you know, watch what happens when you go up to shake hands with a stranger. I use this as part of my stage act, right? I jump off the stage, you go up to somebody, reach out and shake my hand. What do they do? They shake my hand back. You know, well, that, that's a predictable response. It's unconscious. And then they're sure. completely taken apart, you know, taken aback, but they do it because that's what we do. We reciprocate. Robert Cialdini talks in Influence about the, the first right. factor that he mentions determining influence is reciprocity, that instinct to return Good for good, bad for bad. He talks about it as being at the heart of etiquette. Well, it's also at the heart of how we establish trust. One person gives something, the other person reciprocates. Now, match that up with the nature of trust, which is, uh, I'll use a complicated phrase here, it's uh, asymmetrically bilateral. <laughs> asymmetrically, so, so it's asymmetrical in both directions. Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's, you have to have two directions to be asymmetrical. What I mean by that, very simply, and we make it simple, there's a trustor and a trustee. In any, any given interaction, one person initiates, takes the risk, right. and the other person then responds or not. And then, you know, and then you kind of reverse the roles, and then the, the other person becomes the trustor, and the other person becomes the trustee. And then back and forth, uh, uh, you know, upwards migration of these back and forths, you, you end up creating, creating trust. Right. So the key question is, now I work with consultants and, and lawyers and accountants and stuff all the time, and they are very fond of saying, well, you got to wait until the person trusts you before you can make it personal. And I always say, no, that's how you make them trust you. Exactly. You start with the personal. You got to do something. And what we teach them to do is to reveal a little bit of themselves, you know, emotionally and, and, and don't. This is not about bringing, you know, smart stuff a la challenger sale, bring in a challenging uh, thing. You got to do that, but it's not the lead off and it's not the essence of the matter. So what I've evolved is this notion of B-A-R-G, BARGE, bring a risky gift. That's a stupid acronym, but it's the best I've got at the moment. <laughs> but it it's mimics- like a brand of, brand of uh, root beer, but- Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's true. Uh, it mimics the pattern of what do you do when somebody invites you to dinner at their house? You know, you bring a bottle of wine, right? Well, that's automatic. That's understood. It's, it's appreciated. That's what you do. But if you want to make it special, you go out on the limb a little bit. You say, well, I might normally buy a $20 bottle of wine. Maybe I'll go for 35 here. But no, let me make this special. Did they, where did they go vacation last year? Wasn't it Italy? And where did they go? Piemonte. That's what mm -hmm. it was. Let's get them a bottle of Piemontese wine. And I don't really know them, but, you know, this one looks pretty good. And its price is a general rule about it be good. So, and you wrap it up nice. And maybe you put a map of Italy around it or something. Okay. And you bring that. Now, that's a nice gift. That really stands out. It shows, number one, you gave some thought. And it was mm -hmm. thought about them. Right. Obviously aimed at them. Now, is it risky? Yes, it is. Here's why. Number one, maybe you were wrong. It was Spain they went to. Worse yet, maybe they've quit drinking and joined the AA, you know, and you're about to commit a horrible social faux pas. Or maybe they or, hated Piedmont, right? Or maybe they hated it. Yeah, all the above. So the point is, that's the, 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 this goes against our instinct to not take a risk. I'm saying take a risk. Risk falling down flat out and, and, and horribly embarrassing yourself a little bit. Well, what you're really talking about is, is being vulnerable. 
That's exactly correct. That's another good word for it. Vulnerability is key to this sort of stuff. When somebody, that's the handshake thing too. The anthropological origin of the handshake is to say, I come to you with no weapons in my hand. I am vulnerable. I am vulnerable. Exactly. I got, uh, you know, I, I put myself in front of you in harm's way. You can do with me as you want. And I trust that you won't just as I'm not doing to you. That's all that reciprocation, vulnerability, intimacy, and the trust equation that we talk about. And that's what triggers all that personal trust stuff. Uh, well, so, so here's an example. And just to get back to the thing you talk about in stutter steps, you know, small steps that it's, it's brought. But I mean, there's been in the last two months, I've read several articles about now studies coming about the importance of small talk. Oh, yeah. So, so for years now, let's say at least the last decade, is there are sales trainers, sales training programs, books that say, don't waste the customer's time with small talk. <laughs> they don't have time. Forget the chit chat. Yeah, and yeah. What they found studies, not just with, with people, but also they've done some of the studies using animals as well in social groupings, is that the small talk is vital. Yes, it absolutely is. Um, it, it, and it's this principle. It's this reciprocal back and forth dog sniffing kind of stuff that we do. It, it's, uh, it's built into our you know, subconscious DNA. It's how we interact with other people. And until that happens, um, I mean, look at what happens when you buy something online in an automated bot you know, auction system. Mm -hmm. That's perfectly appropriate for certain transactions. Sure. If you totally know what you're doing and there's really no issue but price, and you don't need any interactions, and you should do that. And by the way, with all the, the, the uh, online digital stuff that's happening with sales, of course, everybody knows listening to this that you know the, the front end of the sales of the buying cycle being compressed, and you no longer begin by meeting a salesperson. And um, and that's fine. But this is a good thing. We, mm -hmm. we should we should not in, uh, force ourselves upon the customer until they are ready to hear from us and they should be the ones who tell us when they're ready. And when they are ready, we should be right there completely available to begin all that interpersonal interaction, which is critical. Right. Yeah. And I, I get back to this issue of the vulnerability is, is yeah. I mean, you've, you've done some in the small talk, you've done some research about these people. You, you know, just have a small moment of connection. that could be, you know, back in the days when we used to go make in-person calls is, you know, you'd look around their office and scan the office quickly and see what they're right. interested in. Right. But we can do the same thing virtually these days. Yes. But it's just, it doesn't, you don't have to spend, the point is small talk doesn't have to take 10 minutes or 15 minutes unless the customer chooses they want to go down that right. route. It can be very short. Be very short. By the way, that same pattern replicates at increasingly higher levels of complexity. So sure, small, absolutely. Small talk fits into that gift pattern. So does a larger thing. If you put the challenger sales idea in this context, that's the role of a challenging idea. You bring mm -hmm. Yeah, the gift is an intellectual thought, a point of view that you've given some, some thought to, and it's right. got to be risky. You have to say, listen, this could be wrong. You know, you're an expert in your business, we're not, but based on what we know and based on what we see, and I'm going to go out on the limb here and make a wild guess, this is probably something you guys need to be thinking about. And you know what? You could be wrong, and that's the term of it. If you're willing to put yourself out there and offer up, you know, looking like a fool because you made a wrong guess, that's perceived as valuable and respectful. Yes. We don't want yes men. We don't want people, you know, trying to look as if they're manipulating us and constantly engineering things for us to nod our head all the time. We want somebody who's willing to take a risk and say, hey, it seems to me this. Well, and to play off the word, it's to challenge. Yes. Yeah, I think that that's, that's one of the things that, that reps are so reluctant to do 
But once you've earned the trust, then it's really what the customer expects. Well, that's right. They want you there to help them make their decision. And as a consequence, yeah, they they want you to challenge them. They want you to bring something new to the table. They do. Uh, But again, uh, uh, it has to to be something that might be wrong. Sure. And and therefore, it can play the role, not just of challenging and saying, we provide value add, but also saying, look, here's how we're going to play the game. I'm going to offer you something for free. And I think it's right. And I think it's valuable. But I honestly could be wrong. You're vulnerable again. So again, most, most people who think of the challenger thing do not think of vulnerability. But that's the role this plays also. You could be wrong. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, <laughs> you know, I, I think if you aren't really comfortable with sort of that high wire type, right. type selling, then, yeah, you need to really stick with some, you know, simple transactional type sales where you're not putting yourself out. Well, that's, that's right. And the high wire metaphor is a very apt one. I mean, I use that as a visual because it's, uh, yeah, and that thing plays itself out in lots of different ways. For example, just a small example came up yesterday. Somebody was asking me, what do you do when a potential client asks how much experience you have in a given area, you know, and you're a little bit light, what do you say? And I say, you tell them exactly the truth and don't hedge it either. Right. You know, if they say how much experience you got in healthcare, you tell them two and a half years, three clients, uh, 175 billable hours in this, in the hospital sector and in pharmaceuticals. Right. What else do you want to know? You give totally the truth. Another variation on that is, you know, the, the mantra of um, uh, um, uh, always exceed expectations. Right. That's not truthful. That's lying. That's manipulating. Because if you think about it, if you're going to make sure you always exceed expectations, you're managing expectations downward in the beginning so that you can then overperform. <laughs> well, right. subconsciously or consciously, that is lying and people pick up on it. Right. They learn to pad your comments and add something to it. And it's an ever escalating thing. You are better off doing exactly what you said you're going to do. And, wow. and that really, and this again, this is all about uh, making yourself vulnerable by saying right. exactly what I'm going to do. I'm not trying to manage anything here. This is what I think. Hold me accountable. Right. And the reason I was just smiling is because, you know, the, the lower ex- under promise over deliver is like a salesperson's mantra within the company, right? Yeah. No, that is true. You know, this is, you know, they spend all their time trying to do is, is saying, I mean, a broad generalization, right? No, it was but, true. But, but we certainly have, have both have seen it is that, yeah, salespeople saying, well, yeah, I just need to manage the expectations down. So when I bring this in, we're going to look like a hero. Sure. And the fact is it's, it's really pretty transparent to anybody that has any sort of experience, whether it's, yeah, it it's a sales manager or it's your, your customer, they understand what you're doing. Yeah, they do. And it's, and they discount it. You know? They just kind of right. And now you're off. Yeah, yeah. As you said, nothing beats the truth. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, I've, I've, you know, looked at my own self in terms of, shoot, when I started in this business, um, you know, as a consultant back in the year two thousand. Mm-hmm. You know, my first client was like, okay, well, you know, who are your references? <laughs> like, oh, I remember you telling me about this one. Yeah, yeah I don't, I don't have any. Yeah, right. you're the first one. I mean, there's always the first. <laughs> there's there's always the first. first. How refreshing that somebody might actually admit it. Yeah. So, I mean, you just, you just can't, uh, you can't BS your way around it. No, I tell people the most credible thing you can say, the most cre- trust creating thing you can say is, I don't know. Exactly. Because, you know, who's going to doubt you on that one? Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You're never wrong when you say that, right? <laughs> That's true. Yep. Okay. So, so we, 
we talked about trust, so we don't relate it back yeah. to decision making a little bit more. We talked about that. So, and I think this is one that is really important for salespeople to understand, which, which they don't seem to internalize as much. And not just salespeople, I mean, people involved in sales and influence yeah. in general is the steps that the people go through to make decisions. And yeah. uh, you and I were talking about this you know, a couple of days ago in advance of this. And, and maybe we don't align 100%, but I think we're pretty close in alignment. I'm sure we are. But I think that, that what's important is you need to have this philosophy and understand this philosophy. And that's not really not even philosophy, that's wrong words altogether, the science here about yes. how people make decisions, because it should influence how you act. Absolutely. And yes. as a salesperson. So, so let's, let's sort of go through that. Because you talk about, you have laid out three steps that you have for you know, you to be a decision maker. And I, and I put a step in front of that. Uh, okay. What's your, what's your step in front? So I think there's really two things that happen. And, and you know, I sort of came up with this you know, through my own experience. And then subsequently, I've read you know, research and other things that sort of, from these researchers' point of view, you know, validate that, is that there's two fundamental decisions, if you will, and I, that go into a B2B decision, and actually almost all decisions. Right. Is one is, is this, what I call it, the first is the decision, which is the binary decision. Go, no, go. Are we going to do this or not? Right? Okay. Are we going to make this change? Or are we not going to make this change? Okay. And then once customers have made that, then they start moving to what you talk about, what I call the choice. Right. Who are we going to do it with? And you've laid out three steps that people go through to make that decision about who they're going to go with. Right, 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 right. And so that's why I said I sort of appended that first one on. Okay, sure. Because, yeah, that, that's relevant because sometimes, you know, you decide not to go. And, well, and the, the, the decision to go or not go oftentimes really isn't based on the vendors, you know, on who's selling to them. It's, it's really just it's based, on, based on who the vendors are. True. And so, often, yeah, usually made without them. Yeah, but also they're taking the information from the vendors and saying building their business case and their justification for whether they should do this or not. Oh, I see. And, gotcha. and yeah. so it's almost who the vendors are is almost irrelevant at that point. So okay. yeah, we're going to make this change because again, if we believe the data that comes out that says that in the B two B world, you know, fifty percent plus of deals end up in no decision. Yes. Well, that's that's not that the customer didn't make a decision. They made a decision. Yeah. Which is not to do, do that thing. Right. So that happens first. And then we get into what you were talking about with the three steps about, okay, who do we choose? Right. Right. And so go through your three steps on that. Sure. Let me break that one down. Uh, it's basically a, a screening selection and rationalization or justification. Screening, Those are three steps. Okay. The three screening is a largely cognitive rational process in the business world. Somebody says, yeah, hey, we decided we're going to do this thing or we think we are anyway. Uh, go round up the usual suspects, you know, go Google up, get a list of people, call a few folks, get 10 people, throw them on a spreadsheet. Let's analyze it and decide, narrow it down. And then, and, and then there's a discussion and it's usually also pretty cognitive, rational, straightforward, GV sum, which is top three. And somebody says, well, I know so-and-so, you got to put them in. So somebody puts their thumb on the scale a little bit. <laughs> and you end up with two or three or four, you know, final round candidates. Um, that's screening, okay? And it's fairly non-emotional, cognitive, linear, data-based, et cetera, for the most part. Well, with, with the exceptions you talked about, which is, you know, people putting the thumb on the scale in favor. Yeah, they, that's right. Yeah. I've, I've certainly seen situations where when they make their lists, if you haven't been an insider before then in terms of yeah. 
vendors, you're not going to be on that list anyway. So it's a big exception. Absolutely yeah. right. Um, uh, but even then, people accept it. There's not a big to do about it. Right. Right. They, all right. The guy's throwing in his right. That's okay. We're not at the end yet. Who cares? So then you move into the selection process, and and here actually, let me give you a little vignette if I if I can. Sure. Sure. No, absolutely. This is uh, our my little company's our biggest sale was a year ago, and it was to Deloitte. I'll drop a name. Right. Uh, the big four firm. And Congratulations. Um, Thank you. We were in the final round. Uh, there were two others, much bigger than us. I won't mention names, but well-known names, uh, more established, larger than us. And uh, uh, it was a. This process was two parts. Here, one about two weeks of twenty-page RFP response. A lot of back and forth, written background, experience, capabilities, etc., culminating in a half-hour Skype conversation, an interview. Right, uh, and they lined them all up on one day, you know, one after the other, uh, half hour each. And when we, what we found out later was that each of the other two firms chose to take the first ten minutes of their Skype interview and spend it basically talking about themselves, their experience, their credentials. Yeah, you can see where this is going, right? Yeah, absolutely, yes. It's all, and 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 on the other end, the clients are thinking, what part of thirty minutes don't these people get? Don't right. they realize that having done this, this is why they're here. Why are they repeating themselves? This is like going to a job interview and reading off your resume. Your resume is what got you the job interview, right? Exactly. Why are you doing right. So if there's anything that we know, it's that. That's something we teach. So our, our 30 minutes was, hello, how are you? And we now have 29 minutes left to discuss something with you. Here's a PowerPoint slide with five hyperlinked points. We think these are the five critical issues facing you. Right. We now only have 28 minutes to talk with you. What would you like to talk about? And they said, number four. So we click on number four, boom, right. you know, a few observations, a risky gift. Here's the point of view. Here's a couple of questions. Here's some experience. Fantastic conversation, you know, for the remaining minutes. And they told us later that at about 20 minutes in, they said, not only are these the people we want to go with, these are the people we want to learn to sell like. We want to do this. This exactly. is much better. Well, and so... Uh, two things in there. One is, is for just a second to interrupt, is, is yeah. it's not like your competitors were unsophisticated. Not at all. Uh, inexperienced people. And they yet, were more this, than us. Right. But I mean, inexperienced in terms of life and business in general and their business right. acumen. And yet, this is a common mistake. And, and people think oh. they harp on this serve over and over again, oftentimes with guests and so on. But you know, it's about the customer. And you see, when you see <laughs> really experienced yeah, organizations make this fundamental sales flaw. It is fundamental, and it is so common. I say three out of four. All of our clients, I ask them, "What do you do?" Well, we open up with the PowerPoint. Why do you do that? Exactly. Yeah. It's like when you go on a date. When you go on a blind date with somebody, and the person says to you, "So, tell me about yourself. What do you do?" Well, a, you tell them about yourself because it's rude not to. But b, you better not take longer than thirty to sixty seconds, and you better end up by saying, "But enough about me. Let's talk about you." Well, because but also that's what you do, that's what's polite. Right. But you that's, don't, you don't start the second date by taking 30 seconds to tell all about yourself. Cause no, they already know. That's right. That's right. <laughs> exactly. You pick up where we left off. Right. Exactly. right. So anyway, now that process, that selection, unlike the screening process, which is largely unemotional, cool, cognitive, linear, this is strictly emotive. There, there pops happening all the time during that Skype interview that we had, you know, they're going, yeah, yeah, that's right. Right. You know, there's always a moment in, a, in an interaction like that where the client says, that's it. That's our problem. That's the issue. Exactly. You put your finger on it. 
That's where you made the sale, by the way, right there. Well, that's that's what I that's what I call it. I think I mentioned, and when we were talking earlier, is is it's that aha moment. It's the aha moment. It's not only that's the problem. This is who we want to do business with. That's right. That that is when I call that winning the sale before you win the order. Uh, Exactly right. That's the moment you're shooting for. Totally. And by the way, David Maester, my colleague, had a great saying. He said, the problem is never what the client said it was in the first meeting. It's where you you find the real problem. And you're right. That's when you make the sale before you get the order. That's when it happens. And so when you're... Yeah. And when you're in sales, you, I mean, it's such a great point you bring up because this is what you're shooting for. You know, this is, this is why this you, is the whole point. this is why you try to accelerate the, the creation of trust. I mean, this is why you yes. make sure that you're, you know, mastering these fundamental sales behaviors that create the perceptions in the prospect's mind that lead right. to the trust, because that's going to get you to the stage before everybody else. Well, that's right. And, and again, to, to, to dissect the trust creation in that process, I just described some of it, is in the upfront banter back and forth and, and you know, the, mm-hmm. the little nicety. But some of it also is very consciously built in when we said, all right, we got 28 minutes. Here are five things we think you need to deal with. Right, right there, that's a risk. We could have been wrong on two of them. It turns out later we were wrong on one of them. But you know what? You're excused because the other three are pretty much right on and they know right. we're not experts. That's the whole point. We're throwing some stuff out there and it's not guaranteed layoffs either. It's we're taking a risk. We're working with them. We're showing our intellectual vulnerability and we're making it all for them to, do, to see. We're putting it out on the table. You tell us we're right and wrong. And if we're more wrong than right, then, you know, we shouldn't get the job. That's okay. That's the deal. No, also, also, though, you help them really get insight about Absolutely. what it is they're trying to do. And we showed them, we also showed them the taste test, what it's like to work with us. Yes. The best way to show somebody what it's like to work with them is to work with them. Exactly. And again, we've been, so that's also a sense of intimacy creation and therefore trust creation. Now that's step two out of my three. Right. The third one is justification, rationalization after the fact. Nobody says when they go out to all their compatriots, they say, well, the reason we went with those guys was, man, it was really fun working with them. We really like them. We kind of trust them. We can sort of dig them, you know? No. <laughs> they were qualified. They were competent. They had the best track record. They have a very impressive methodology, great client list. You know, we rationalize what we decided from the heart. We rationalize yep. it with the brain. Yep. So we have this sandwich, right? An emotional decision sandwiched by, you know, a, a selection process that's very rational and a rationalization justification process is also very rational. But in the middle, it's that heart stuff that happens. Yeah. As we say, we make logical decisions for emotional reasons. Uh, yes. Well said. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. And by the way, interesting in that one example, what happened, once they make the flip switch decision to go with you, they started supporting us. For example, in our case, we had much less international delivery capability than the other two firms. Right. So when they said, well, you know, how are you going to scale over to Eastern Europe? Uh, we started saying, well, that's kind of an issue. And they said, well, maybe we can help you out with this. Maybe we can second some of our people. They began helping us, you know, get the sale once they've made up their mind. So this notion that people accumulate based on content, expertise, et cetera. It's just wrong. That's not how people make up their minds. They make it through uh, a, a, a evolving sense of trust, which then makes them inclined to reciprocate and listen to your ideas in ways that they would not listen to you had you not done it yourself in the first place. Right. I mean, it's, 
All right. So, so two things in there. One is, is this whole idea of trust preceding uh, competence, if you will, is, is yeah. Amy, Amy Cuddy talks about that in her book, Presence, but you know, when yeah. somebody, when you're forming perceptions, you know, two things you want to know is can I trust this person and are they capable? Mm-hmm. But trust always precedes capabilities. Pretty much. It's kind of iterative, but, but trust generally is in the lead. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're thinking about, you know, you start off that meeting like those other guys did with, you know, talking about themselves again. Yeah, exactly. Because what they're thinking is capabilities are paramount and right. trust really comes in second. It's not that way at all. Right. And of course, clients and customers are complicit in this little uh, fake uh, ritual because they don't know any better. They say, well, right. tell us about yourself. Tell us what you do. Tell us why we should buy from you. Right. And we think it's this game that means what they say. No, it doesn't. Any more than the blind date, it really cares when they say, tell me about yourself. They don't want to hear about that much about you. Right. They want to hear how you talk about them. Yeah. Well, and then you also, you talked about once they start deciding to help you is, yeah, that's when you know that that aha moment happened. Yeah, that's right. Because now you're really getting into this idea of you're, you're co-creating the solution. Right. And when you get that, that co-creation taking place, yeah, you're, almost at the, you're almost at the promised land. You kind of are. You're just not yeah. getting paid yet. It's not, well, that's why, that's why I said almost. I mean, yeah, that's right. But, you know, there you're at the point where you've given them something that they might, to your point about being paid, is they might very well have paid you for mm. independently. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's true. Mm-hmm. And which raises another point. I know a lot of people I work with, they're... They have this feeling, well, you can't give that much away because, you know, it's valuable stuff, information, knowledge that we're giving. You got to charge for it. You know, there's a limited, no, there isn't. There's an unlimited supply of problems. And, um, you know, most, most people I work with, they're plenty good enough to keep coming up with solutions right. as long as they're problems. And there's no end to, to the number of problems that are out there. Well, I think one of the real key takeaways for people is, is one, hopefully, that they're taking away is that, and this is to me is huge and and been emphasizing it for a long time is is that you know emotions really drive the sale mm-hmm. and more so than people want to acknowledge yeah and you know there's been research done about you know the component of emotions and decision making people thinking that you know there's some element that emotion plays but but there's actually this uh, researchers in Italy you know done a study they had found a a man who had brain damage to the emotional control center of his brain. Ah. And so they studied and what they found out is he, he so he'd felt no emotions. And right. what they found out is he couldn't make any, any decisions. Couldn't decide yeah. what to wear. Couldn't decide what to eat. So even the simplest decisions in our life yeah. are guided by our emotions. So yeah. if you go into a business situation and a sales situation, you think that, well, the logical solution for them is, you know, X and we're, this is what we want to propose. That's like, well, <laughs> yeah. Let's look at it a different way. You know, it's interesting what you're saying. It makes me think uh, I was yesterday with a major global consulting firm that we all know, and it was mid-level people. And they had, um, I, I've been talking about the kind of thing we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And they had some videos separately later in the day of clients talking. You know, we all love to listen to clients. Sure. And very important CIOs and CFOs and everything. And they're talking on about how you got to have tough ideas and you got to add value and you got to be measurable. I'm thinking, you know, stop lying. Stop lying to these poor consultants. You know, they don't know better yet. And you should. Um, there is this, and I'm not totally blaming the clients because they're also a little bit 
kidding themselves. You know, that we all like to think that we're tough, rational, deductive, right. et cetera. But the truth is exactly what you said. All that research is very right. We, and I absolutely include highly educated, overeducated, MBA sure. type quantitative people in right. highly technocratic and, and, you know, statistically driven industries. Yeah, we, we make decisions like monkeys, like babies. We are emotional creatures. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> like monkeys, yeah. Well, abso- absolutely. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's anything. Anyway, Rhonda, I always tell a story about uh, once when I was working for another company years ago and, and a CEO and I went and we were calling this huge telecommunications company about uh, building a product for them. And we had been working the deal for quite a while and it was time to bring the CEO with me down and met with their CEO. And, and we walk out of the meeting, which had been a very positive meeting, but he turns to me and said, there's no way we're going to get this deal developing a product for them because they've got 300 engineers in that building who's covered to build products like this. I said, yeah, but <laughs> he, was an, he was an engineer himself. And I said, yeah, right. it's not black and white like that. I mean, they're, right. they don't trust their internal people. <laughs> yeah. To be able to get it done. He said, yeah. oh, no, no. They're paying their salaries anyway. There's no way. Well, of course, we got the deal. But I mean, right. because it was emotional based. I mean, you could just yeah. see they, the trust didn't exist. You know, as it usually is. That's, that's the way it works. Yeah. Yeah. So Charlie, since you've been on the show before, you don't get the same standard questions you got last time. You get a new set, just four questions. So take it easy on you today. So the first one is in your mind, is it easier to teach a technical non-salesperson how to sell or teach a salesperson how to sell a technical product? The former. It's easier to teach a technical person how to sell than it is to teach a salesperson the the, the technology stuff. So why do you think that's the case? Because I agree with you, but we're in the minority. Yeah, we are. I think you're right. Um, I I think it's because, uh, well, two reasons. One, it's simply, it's more time-consuming and difficult to teach technical mastery than it is to teach some good, functional, basic, interpersonal human skills. I agree. Uh, It just takes more time. I mean, think about getting a CPA, for example, compared to, you know, learning how to talk better to clients. Right. But secondly... And interesting, there's some authenticity issues at stake here. If you can teach a halting, bumbling accountant how to, you know, uh, to empathize, oh my gosh, that must be terrible, you know, uh, and and their clunkiness will be completely evident, but so will their sincerity. Yes, it's it's nakedly right there. So by just making a little improvement in people whose emotional intelligence skills are kind of low, you keep that authenticity and you gain a lot of leverage. You can see this is somebody who's a strongly technical, deep person and they're working, they're trying to do it right. You know what? You get a lot of credit. Oh, I agree. I agree. I mean, I had one client I worked with where we took a guy of engineering who was pathologically shy yeah, and turned him into our number one salesperson. (laughs) Just the reasons you said. Just the reasons you said. Authenticity was off the charts. All right, yeah. so next question is, what's one great book, not a business book, not a sales book, one great book that you'd recommend every salesperson read? It could be Shakespeare. I mean, just it could be a novel. What? Wow. Um, well, I, I, I'll give you a wild and crazy idea. Sure. Um, Barge. Yeah, right. Uh, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
Which oh, is fascinating. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you quickly why. It's it's full of uh, it, it. Essentially, is over and over and over again. People discovering that they're not in charge of things that they're not in charge of. I mean, the Serenity Prayer, which grows right. up both the program, says basically, right. you know, uh, "Give me the serenity to accept the things I can't change, the courage to change the things I can, the wisdom to know the difference." Yeah, and the right. problem is usually the first one is serenity to accept things we can't change. Salespeople are afflicted with this desire to think, well, I got to get the client to do this. Well, um, Neil Rackham actually buried in, in selling this some interesting research. He trained some people in closing techniques. And by training them at closing techniques, they got worse at closing. <laughs> because it's essentially manipulative. Sure, exactly. And, and we can all see that, right? So the real talent in trust-based selling is detached from the outcome, which is pure 12-step stuff. You know, give right. it up. You're not, in, you're not in charge of anything. The phrase is, there is a God and you're not it. Yeah. You're, not you're in charge, charge of the process, but that's it. That's it. You know, and then let it go and respect your clients and your customers and stop fighting and stop trying to sell. If you do right. that, you'll actually sell more. <laughs> right. And more managers need to understand that as well because... Yeah, you may think your salespeople are in charge. You may think you're in control of the process. You may think you're in control. You're not. And you're not. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I think I wrote about this in my first book, but you know, if you Googled at that time, if you Googled controlling the sales process, you got like 30 million or 35 million search returns. It's like you yeah. know, still, people still think they can do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. Um, all right. Third question. If you could change one thing about your business self, what would it be? Ah, well, um, I've, I've never known how to set goals. Uh, I've just never wanted to do it. It's never worked for me and not know how to do it. And I keep hearing everybody saying, you got to set goals. I just, I'm not trying to justify this at all. I've just never done it. Yeah. I think you've reached the point where that's Probably not the, the paramount thing for you. I, I never was. It never was. And, uh, but I've been, and honestly, I think there's something to it. Everybody else says there's something to it. And so I would change knowing something about that gold business because I, I probably could have done a lot better than I have. Okay. All right. So last question. Do you have a, other than the serenity prayer, do you have a favorite quote or words of wisdom you live by? Uh, um, well, it's that same concept, really, mm -hmm. that uh, uh, if you can detach from the outcome and just let it go, uh, the outcomes tend to be a lot better. But you actually have to detach from it. You, you, right. can't, you can't use it as a tactic. You say, well, I know I will care in order to make a lot of money. <laughs> People see right through that one. Yeah. Uh, but the truth is, if you can legitimately care about your customers and your clients and do the right thing and forget what you're going to get the sales, just stop thinking about that. You get more sales. Exactly. It really does work that way. It sounds like a Beatles song, but it's pure capitalism too. It actually works. All right. Well, good. Well, Charlie, thank you for joining me again. So, oh, Thank you, Andy. Always a pleasure. You're the best interviewer around. Oh, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. So tell folks how they can find out more about you. Uh, the website is trustedadvisor.com, one word, uh, spelled A-D-V-I-S-O-R, the English way, trustedadvisor.com. And uh, there's a bunch of stuff on there. There's tons of stuff for free, including a self-assessment and, uh, you know, books, articles, blog posts, um, and uh, free videos. Uh, come say hi.
All right. Excellent. Well, good. Well, thank you again. And friends, thank you for spending time with us today. Remember to make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And easy way to do that is to make sure you don't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Charlie Green, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. And if you enjoy Accelerate and the value we're delivering, then please take a quick minute right now to leave your feedback about this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen. It would be very much appreciated. And thanks again for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com.